suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Hello out there, and welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Morahan, and my brother, J.S., to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and yeah, we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate those high seas of life. Today, we return to Utopia. You're gonna love it. Part four of a six-part series. And we continue our exploration of utopias, large and small, taking a deep dive into points in and around Antelope, Aragon, located 143 miles east of what once had been the very great, very cool, funky city of Portland, but which now has morphed into and disintegrated into a dystopia that is the Portlandia of 2023, overrun by junky drug addicts, the homeless, petty criminals who are unafraid of police because progressive policies like defund the police and defiance of all things, striking of authority, of law and order, are anathema to much of the Oregonian population to their great disgrace great disruption, and all the turmoil that goes on in Portland. Preventing crime and keeping the peace are judged fascist tendencies. And looking at this from afar, it seems crystal clear. Society will be ruled by somebody. Either it's going to be ruled by authorities and the police, or it's going to be taken over by criminals and drug addicts. Let chaos reign. And given a choice, I'll take my chances with police patrolling the streets rather than than ceding control of the neighborhood to violent, low-life, hophead losers. But hey, that just that just might be me. In any event, having having made that clear, we return now to Antelope, Oregon. Specifically, Antelope, Oregon, between the summer of 1981 and the close of 1984. And let us suggest the idea of utopia had assumed very different dimensions during that time frame. All was not good in Mudville, as the real yogi would say. Not some fake yogi might have opined. All was not well in Antelope, Oregon. And confrontations between Antelopians and and city, county, state, and federal authorities of all types and the Ra Nishi Commune under the direction of the Bhagwan's most trusted advisor, Sheila Silverstein, known in the commune as Ma Anand, they were metastatizing. Relations could not have been worse. Yeah, yeah, yet somehow they would deteriorate further and turn toxic. Even as thousands more Ranishis flocked into the Oregonian religious utopian commune. Hmm. Locals con, uh, considered 
Ranish Puram, and a, a modern rendition of the biblical Sodom and Gomorrah and refer to the red-robed Ranishis as red vermin and red rats when not simply adjudicating that their entire colony was just a bunch of maladjusted freaks. Their freewheeling lifestyle, unorthodox practices, and, and cult-like adherence to the principles espoused by their leader, the Bhagwan and his lieutenants, meant conflict with Ranishis was ultimately inevitable between those in Antelope, Oregon, and the Ranishis. And, you know, and this is sort of odd, given that the local population of Oregonians was, was known for and had earned a reputation built on a, a historical liberal instinct, you know, a commitment to hard work, the mining of one's own business, and libertarian ways. You know, characters that were right out of Ken Kesey's novel, Sometimes a Great Notion, The Stamper Family, Hank and Henry hardworking, self-sufficient, keep to yourself, respect the environment types. Now, now these same Oregonians found their belief system and their community under outright assault. They were stunned, they were shocked, and they were in disbelief, increasingly demeaned by the invaders, the red-robed Ranishis, as intolerant fascists. Hmm, this is all very interesting. Now, under the Bhagwan and his chief enforcer, Ma Anand, the cult members' first objective? Well, it was constructing adequate housing to meet the needs of the now hyperbolically exploding population on the commune, the Big Muddy, and developing the necessary infrastructure required of any full-blown metropolis that was evolving on what was previously and, and had been unoccupied, pristine, virgin ranch land purchased by the Bhagwan and his Ranishi disciples with the millions of dollars of funds so generously donated to the Bhagwan by cult members, you know, out of their personal savings um, that they'd earned from their previous jobs and from family inheritances and with those donated funds, construction was underway. Building, environmental, health codes, ordinance, laws, regulations, be damned. You know, and all development took, the, you know, took form under the guidance, direction, influence, and the command of Sheila Silverstein, a.k.a. Ma Anand. All oars worked in unison, in unison on on this utopia. <laughs> Thomas More would have agreed with this principle. Ma'anan definitely was a take-no-prisoners type. You know, a demographic study of uh, the Ranishi community, conducted by a leader of the Ranishis himself, um, determined that cult members' median age was 30. Ranishis far exceeded average Americans in wealth. 85% of them were from middle or upper middle income families and 
As a group, they are far more educated than the average American as well. Fully two-thirds of Ranishis had obtained college degrees. And not surprisingly, <laughs> I guess, half, half of the Ranishis came from California. Oh, shocking. And 97% were white. 25% of them were Jewish. And again, not shockingly, three-quarters of the cult members admitted that they had been in therapy prior to joining the commune. Yeah, well, this doesn't surprise me one bit. And fully half the Ranishis had experimented with belonging to another spiritual group at a previous time in their lives. Kooks? Oh, you bet. I mean, now that I think about it, it reminds me that Mick Jagger had once said, I'm just waiting on a friend. Well, the Ranishi members probably were the kind of, of people whom in high school, they were just weirdos. You know, kids whom struggled to find any friend, you know, to fit in at all. Definitely not the most popular kids in their high school. Not part of the in crowd. <laughs> not by a long shot. <laughs> they, were, they were Richard Price's The Outsiders. And critically, and this is important, the majority of Ranishis were women. And, you know, about this, I make two, you know, two points. There are two things. Number one, this is a big deal that most of the cult members were women. Number two, this is always, always a very good thing, actually. Actually, it's critical to anybody in who's interested in forming a cult and creating a utop utopia, as we shall see. No matter the utopia's size, big, small, medium, doesn't matter. The more women there are, the better. And three quarters of Ranishis attributed their decisions to become Ranishis due to their infatuation and love of the Bhagwan Sri Ranish personally and his preachings, his message. 91% stated they were looking for more meaning in their lives. And when asked how to, um, you know, to rate how they felt about their lives as Ranishis, 93% stated they were extremely satisfied. And I don't think I'm going to go out on a limb when I presume that male cult members, almost to a man, you know, as it is said, would definitely would definitely have reported to having been in a state approaching near Satori. They were extremely satisfied. And why wouldn't they report such? You know, provided the Bhagwan continued to hold up his end of the bargain, you know, did his thing, which meant that he would, you know, sustain his nonstop efforts at promoting the benefits accruing to sexual free-for-alls and general promiscuity, everything would be cool. They would be extremely satisfied. You, you go, girl. You go. <laughs> the Ranishis, busy as bees in her colonies, dutifully you know, spent their time constructing A-frame houses, dormitories, the Bhagwan's private swimming pool, warehouses, um, miscellaneous other buildings, roads, sewage systems, and, and other facilities that any metropolis would require. And Ranishis planted and tended crops. They cared for farm animal herds. And why the hell not? They, design, they designed and constructed an 
airport runway system to accommodate the Bhagwan's personal, you know, his private DC-3, all while being further indoctrinated into the spiritual belief system adopted by and shared with them, you know, the disciples of the Bhagwan Sri by the Bhagwan himself. The philosophy featured fostering the growth of material wealth and spiritual growth through a commitment to sexual liberation. And, and have no doubts about this. The Bhagwan was willing to drink his own Kool-Aid. Yes, he was. And he did. The Bhagwan certainly pursued and enjoyed these values, these benefits that accrued in a big way. You know, no doubt this was a great gig if you could somehow pull this shit off. And the Bhagwan had. You know, I told you, I believe once in an earlier podcast, you know, that I had had a, a Nigerian taxi driver back in Chicago years ago. You know, years ago, who, who, who so wistfully, yet not braggadociously, he... He, you know, he had just retreated into and he, and he lost himself inside of those memories that he had. You know, as he shared with me his remembrance of the paradise that he delighted in on his annual pilgrimages to back to Lagos, tooling around that megalopolis in a bright yellow Cadillac. You know, I was like. Cyrus, the great king of kings, and he and he barely whispered to me in, in in what I would call reverential tones, as if he were in church. Oh, so so many women's so so many women's yeah the the creation of an alternative lifestyle, the sheer magnitude of the movement and the commune growth simply. Blew away, stunned, and overwhelmed the local antelopians in their community. And the Bhagwan's movement, whose cornerstone beliefs featured the promotion of materialism and sexual hedonism and the liberation resulting from free, free love, now generated significant conflicts with the local residents, appalled at all that was going on in the Big Muddy Ranch or what formerly had been the Big Buddy Ranch. And the sheer number of red-robed cult members was, was simply incomprehensible to them. Ranishis were perceived to be overrunning the community, raping the land, and constructing their religious utopia out of the ether on virgin land of the Big Muddy Ranch. And the non-conforming Ranishis refused to conform and in fact, completely ignored, you know, sort of gave the finger, not sort of, they did. They gave the finger to the local building ordinances, permitting processes, and they behaved as if environmental regulations and guidelines either, you know, simply did not exist at all. Or if they did exist, they did not apply to them. The Ranishis were special people. And they proceeded to develop their commune property as they alone saw fit. All that sex and all that building and the hell with you, you antelopians. 
Laws and regulations were for less enlightened people to follow, not we Ranishis. We'll do what we want, we'll do it when we want, and we're going to do it however we want. And that's utopia for you, so stick it. And no one could, would, or is going to stop us. So screw you. That was the message Ma Anand sent to everyone outside the Ra Nishi commune. And that's how utopia works. You assholes, Ma Anand and the Ranishis plowed each other, and then they plowed ahead, and in doing so, they pissed off everyone but fellow Ranishis. And as I've mentioned, the Bhagwan guided the commune spiritually while the business side of affairs came under the iron-fisted rule of this woman, Ma Anand Sheila, also known as Sheila Silverman, whom, whom, just as an aside, had married Mark Harris Silverman of Highland Park, Illinois, of all places, which just coincidentally was the city immediately adjacent to the village of Deerfield, Illinois, in which I had grown up. I mean, that was really a coincidence. And Ma Anand met daily with the Bhagwan to brief him, you know, tell him what's what and keep him abreast of commune business matters in utopia. He was dependent upon and he relied upon Ma Anand to organize, manage, and command all commune matters and relations with the outside community. And, and the Bhagwan trusted her implicit, implicitly. And Ma Anand Sheila claimed later that she had no sexual relationship with the guru, none whatsoever. She was all about the business of running the commune. Hmm. Later, there was conflicting evidence that such, you know, such that it might have been, um, you know, possibly argued that the Bhagwan really didn't have a clue, didn't have a clue as to what was going on. And, you know, with respect to environmental laws, health codes, etc., nor did he have a clue as to how bad communal relations were, and it was all caused by Ma Anand Sheila, that he had no idea what was going on. You know, so out of touch with the business, the regulatory side of affairs, the, Bhag, the Bhagwan might be able to argue that he hadn't a clue. The hammer might be coming down on he and his religious utopia sooner rather than later. He had no idea. You know, he, he had no idea anything was amiss. I'm not sure this is true, um, but all that would be dealt with in the future. A number of commune leaders, however, would argue that the Bhagwan was fully aware, fully aware crimes were being committed by Ranishi leaders. Ma Anand had been anointed the spokeswoman for the Ranishi commune, and what she said was gospel both inside the commune and to those outside the community. And 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 in possession of a paranoid streak as maniacal as Joseph Stalin, she would permit no internal threat to you know, interfere with her unique ac access to the Bhagwan, nor would she permit any challenge to her authority in deciding what went on on the Big Muddy Ranch property. And she had total, absolute control of relations with all authorities outside the commune. The, the commune. She was an excellent fascist. Yes, she was. Lord Acton's, you know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely was a rule that Ma Anand 
lived by. She proved the rule and she was prepared. This woman was prepared to kill, to stay in total control, as you shall see. Life in utopia can be so confusing at times. You donate money, all you want is peace, love, lots of stray sex. And, and there's so, so much strife as it turns out. What a bummer. Anyway, construction carried on on the Big Muddy, unimpeded. The commune population continued to skyrocket. But when the Ranishis under Ma'anan finished construction on the airport runways sufficient to accommodate and bring in a fleet of aircraft, including the Bhagwan's private DC-3s, Ilya Akta Est. The die had been cast. The Rubicon had been crossed. The Ranishi conflict with the external world now went completely off the rails. And, you know, in the meantime, you know, along the line of narrow, you know, fiddling while Rome burned, the Bhagwan loved all his women, loved his extensive collection of very expensive watches, and was especially fond of wearing one particular timepiece from his huge array of Rolexes. And given he always extolled to his disciples the absolute pleasure accruing to all those who maximized personal material wealth, in which he was all in favor, it only made sense that the Bhagwan post-sexual healing of all sorts would take great Great personal pleasure would luxuriate, actually, when touring, when chauffeured about, the greater neighborhood of Antelope, Oregon, and nearby environs, and seen by the locals adorned in one of those expensive watches while he was seated in the back seat of, get this, one of his 93 personal, his personal fleet of 93 Rolls Royces that had been purchased, financed by funds donated by his worshiping Ranishi disciples, money saved from incomes earned at jobs that they'd held previous to joining the cult, or from family inheritances they'd so graciously, so generously had passed along to the a, a most appreciative Bhagwan. <laughs> I mean, I mean, just how good is it to be the, the leader of a cult? I mean, all those Rolexes, the, the DC-3, the watches, all, the, all those sexually liberated women. Jeez. I mean, the Bhagwan, no, he knew. People were just, they were, they were just so nice. Oh, my God. Hard feelings, though, were metastasizing in antelope and nearby environs. And when that happens... History shows violence is bound to ensue. And it's on that note, we're going to shut things down for the day. And I'll leave you with the words, something's happening here. What it is? Well, we'll discuss that in our next episode. Hey, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <music>
harbor head out to the sea Crystal blue water surrounding me Tap to the wind, taste the sea breeze Tropical heaven on the coral sea A little more rum I think of my wife What did I do, have I ruined my life? Tell her I've changed, become a new man I promise I will and I know that I can When did the skies change, when did we turn back? How am I ever gonna get myself back? The sea's now boiling and I'm getting cold I've lost my sails, got to find a way home Alone in my boat Stand adrift on the high seas of life Years from tomorrow, days from the land Nothing can save me unless fate lends a hand Storm, it is worse and I have no control The wind and the waves are taking their toll I look to the stars, there's none I can see I'm afraid fate, she has answered me Only moments my story will end And there was a story I wanted to send Oh, how I dream for the calm of the sea Smiling back at me The sea is boiling and I'm getting cold I've lost my sails, got to find a way home When did the skies change, when did they turn black? How am I ever gonna get myself back? Alone in my boat, I think of my wife I'm lost in a drift on the high seas of life When did the skies change, when did they turn black? How am I ever gonna get myself back? Alone in my boat, I think of my wife I'm lost in a drift on the high seas of life See